Hey, you're listening to Lit After Dark, the podcast where three English teachers nerd out while they analyze Netflix's dark. This week, we're looking at Season 1, Episode 8, As You Sow, So Shall You Reap. Ulrich chases Helge into the caves, but only finds a young version of him in 1953. To protect his son and his family, Ulrich attacks him. The Stranger has a long, complicated discussion with H.G. Tanhaus, author and clockmaker, about time, choice, and wormholes. And Egon investigates the finding of two dead boys at the construction site for the nuclear power plant. We know them to be Yasin and Eric from 2019. All that, plus our analytical takes on this episode of Lit After Dark. I wanted to record as soon as possible just so I could watch the next episode. I am desperate to finish at least season one. I gotta know. Yep. I don't even know what I gotta know. I just gotta know. (laughs) I will say this episode unlocked some previously locked memories for me. Me too. Of things that I had previously forgotten that I knew. Yeah. And I'm wondering, because I mentioned to you guys earlier in the week that I remembered something, something came back. And I think Tommy probably also got that. But I got to tell you, it's right there in this episode, right in front of us. And they haven't said it clearly. We may come to that conclusion in this episode, I feel. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Okay. Interesting. Well, as our work has been out there more, we have been reviewed again. How exciting. We have another five-star review uh, that I will read aloud right this second. Very exciting. And this person, this isn't even a real name, unless I, I don't really know what given names could be, but I don't think anyone is named River Life 20. But you thank you, know. River Life 20. They say, great companion listen. If you were a fan of Lost, you'll definitely love Dark. Dark is visually rich and full of questions. If you're not watching closely, you may miss a context clue, foreshadowing, or some helpful symbolism. Tommy, Josh, and Jen do a great job of rounding up important moments in the show. Plus, they ask all the questions you had in your head while you were watching. This podcast is lighthearted and analytical. I highly recommend it. Very nice. So nice. Very nice. So thank you, River Life 20. Your contribution is very much appreciated. Yes. And all of your contributions, tell your friends to listen. We spend a lot of time on this show when we really try to make it really good. (laughs) And hopefully more and more people will get to listen to it. So that's very exciting. Our international demographics are actually holding up pretty well as well. That's cool. Shocking. (laughs) As perhaps you have heard in our banter, Josh and I have watched this show before. Jen is watching it for the very first time. So we are keeping it hashtag spoiler free here on Lit After Dark because we don't want to take away that joy of learning something for the first time and experiencing it as the show wants you to experience it. And so as you listen to each episode, each one that we record will obviously like this has spoilers for episode Eight, of course, but not for anything beyond that. We won't say anything there. And each week we are going to be discussing an episode of the show and we will be bringing our unique literary perspectives. As we have come to find out, they are quite different from each other, the way that we watch this show. The first segment of our show is basically a free-for-all. We call it Lit Takes, where we talk about notable things that happen. Could be kind of chronological, usually kind of character-based, but we kind of jump around a lot as things spark our fancy. So, Jen, where do you want to start this episode? I'm really intrigued to begin with a Shakespeare quote, in all honesty, 
um, just because I didn't look into it and I definitely assumed you both would. But I was trying to consider its connection to the events in this episode and kind of understand a little more of its meaning. If we want to start there. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So from our previous conversation, all I've gathered so far, it is from The Tempest. Mm -hmm. So tell me, what did you gather about this Shakespeare quote, if anything? Or what do you think it means in light of the episode? In terms of the meaning for the episode itself, I looked at it in terms of the existence of hell and who is the devil as a not divine, but at least supernatural creature. And if there is an empty hell there, that like I was looking at it in terms of there is no hell, there is no afterlife, there are no devils, there is no God. It's just humans. It's just us making actions, making decisions and choosing our paths. And there is no overarching evil guiding it. There is therefore also no overarching good guiding it which really wraps in way later in the episode when the stranger is talking to H.G. Tenhouse about who decides, is it God that gives it a purpose? Is it coincidence? Is it just us? And wondering if there is some overarching presence, intelligence, being, helping to control the actions of humanity. That was my exact same reading on it. At first, I thought that it may be that, okay, Hell is now empty because all the devils are here causing problems. But I think after watching the episode, coming back to that quote, that seems to be a correct reading, at least for the purpose for that quote. Hmm. Yeah. As long as we're talking about illusions here, I also want to talk about the title of the episode, which is Mm. As You Sow, So Shall You Reap. That is part of Galatians 6, 7, which in the New King James Version is, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And again, I think that the specific context of the quote is not as important as the meaning of the quote itself as it relates to dark. And I love the word mocked here because it both means sneered at, like really aggressively, like your nose is upturned, like you smell something horrible and I'm so much better than you. But also in this sense, mocked in terms of mimicked, God cannot be mimicked. And so we have seen characters over time talking about changing the past. Jonah, the stranger, most recently, Ulrich, Helge, all talking about changing the past. And wouldn't that be a form of taking on the power of God, acting as God, deciding where things go? I just think it's very interesting talking about mocking God when we have these characters who are taking on a lot of power and responsibility for themselves. I like looking at it in conjunction with the title of the episode. I guess I was, I wanted to hear what you guys think because the only takeaway I had initially was that initial beginning quote from Shakespeare to the end. I don't remember who said it, um, that Wyndon is a festering sore. The stranger said that. He did. Obviously echoing Katarina's words. Because we've heard that before. And I, as everything unfolds in this episode, there are many, not many, but everyone has their dark side, obviously. They're, um, I don't know if evil is too far of a stretch of a word to describe <laughs> some of the characters' choices in the story, but I think that 
there are many devils walking around Winden, and it's now that we've seen three time periods and we've seen certain characters' evolution over those time periods, it becomes more evident to me that there's a lot of evil happening here. And it's quite oh, intriguing yes. and fascinating and enjoyable to watch, but... <laughs> Yeah, I think that really relates to the half-man, half-beast Minotaur mm -hmm. illusion that was going on earlier. I think that also relates to what uh, Ten House said about dualism and thinking about things in terms of this or that, yeah. when really there's some third option. So what you're saying about everybody having an evil side, making evil choices, makes a lot of sense because nobody is binary, right? We all make decisions that put us somewhere in the middle. Hmm. Mm. Like a triketra of choices. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I wanted to kind of start with is looking at our own family tree. And listeners can look in on this as well. But because we have gone back another 33 years in this episode, we now know a bit more. We now know a few more characters. And I, I just kind of wanted to mention some of the kind of things that I learned as I was filling in this. Now, I wanted to start with the Tiedemann family. We see Claudia when she's younger, and we find that, yes, there is a mother, of course. But did you guys catch Egon's wife's name? I did not. Mm -mm. Yeah. So we were able to figure out that she was around, and perhaps she, she dies before the 80s. We also meet Trant's mother, Agnes, and we see that going back. And interestingly, Agnes mentions her own grandmother used to live in Winden. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm not like put, putting something in there to, to add clues. I have no idea if that is actually something important to the, to the show at all. And in addition, we see Helg, his father and mother, and we have seen his father before because Bernd was the man in the wheelchair in episode three. Ah. And it kind of makes sense because we see him limping in this episode. And so we can know, okay, his his injury or his leg issues have progressed. But I did not get a name for the mother, for Helg's mother. Uh, I think it's Ice Queen. Ice Queen Doppler. <laughs> yes. Maybe. <laughs> How scary Maybe. is she? Dude, she's that arm folding is like a physical attack that she uses. It was not even just with her son, it was with Egon as well. And I was like, oh, okay. Egon has always let himself be pushed around yeah. by whoever wants to, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Did you have anything else about the family tree? Uh no, no. That was that was the main characters that we are introduced to. All the other ones I believe we know. Cool. Well, let's go to I mean, we're already there. Let's talk about Helga's interaction with learning about the bodies at the construction site up through his really bizarre interaction with his mom and his dad. Yeah. Bizarre is a good description. Before we get to that interaction, when I was watching this, it was so weird to me. He was witnessing the crime scene that he later put and it was it was such a weird this whole show does that with the whole time loops but he's seeing his own work and that was just 
a cool way to start. Which definitely relates back to what Tenhouse was saying about the chicken and the egg. Like, did he come across this first? Was he, as an older version of himself, forced to put those bodies there because he had already seen them when he was younger? Or did he see them when he was younger because the older version of himself made the choice to put them there? Mm-hmm. It's very much yeah. Back to the Future vibes. <laughs> oh, yes. And I'm going to be talking a lot about choice in Lit 101. And <laughs> There's a lot with – okay, I my second viewing was the English version. I know. Judge me. Go ahead. But they say hell We don't judge you at all for you that. You 100% like, judge me. <laughs> I really don't. I just don't like it. I can't stand it. Yeah, that's it. I just I, – I understand. It just helps me to really take in the scenes. And they say hell gay, so I'm going to stick with hell gay <laughs> because that's how I hear it. Well, we looked this up. It's actually – it's a schwa, yeah. which is like the relaxing of your mouth almost. Mm-hmm. whatever yeah i first feel like this child was perfectly casted and when you and i'll talk about this later but that evolution because we get to see him in 1986 and 2019 it's just a beautiful connection throughout of this embodiment of this character but there's something about him on a bicycle and just like exploring and yeah stumbling upon these this crime scene and coming home and being treated the way he is by his mother. But those wide eyes and that just his little sweater vest and his little collared shirt and his little pants. Like, I just want to put him in my pocket. Like, he's adorable and he's (laughs) sweet. But as we kind of watch his character unfold, there's the sinister side that runs throughout but that interaction between mom and dad is something I'm kind of narrowing in on because mom, who we've already described as the ice queen, she was scary and intimidating. And even when she was telling him to get undressed because his clothes were dirty, I was also like, whoa, what's happening here? This is, this is it just had a weird, strange vibe. I don't know if you guys felt that too. Oh, absolutely. Because it, it could have just been like, oh, you're all dirty. Let me help you. And because it's mom. So being around in your underwear, which are very like, that's pretty much being in full clothes. Yeah, they're modest. <laughs> <laughs> he, but he, it was abuse to him. Yeah. Just the way that it was and He done. was like covering himself. Yeah. Yeah. And like, she knew that. She, that was mm-hmm. part of it. Because she could have run up to get the shorts or whatever he ended up, she ended up handing him. Yeah while he was undressing but she forced him to like strip down to his underwear which was so bizarre it felt very wrong but then when dad comes in and the way that he approaches him and then like he caresses his cheek in a really non-fatherly way to me i don't i'm not reading into that to mean anything but just a very it's tender yeah very tender and very You could see his response to his dad was like, oh, I'm just melting into this and I admire this man so much. So it's an interesting Well, it reminded me, I don't know if it reminded you, but it reminded me of Katerina, Mikkel, and Ulrich. Obviously, Katerina was not aggressive to the extent that Mrs. Doppler is, but just to the effect of, you can't wear that to school, let's go, come on, and Mm. dad being like, show me a magic trick, buddy, and (laughs) that sort of closeness. It just kind of echoed that same kind of relationship to me. Hmm. 
That's interesting because I feel like there's so many mirrored scenes like that in this show that everything is almost a replica of something we've already seen. So right after this, Helga goes to the cabin slash bunker and is playing games. And I don't know if this was the same experience that you guys had in this episode, but every time I saw Helge, I wanted to, I I kept expecting that he was going to get his injury at that moment because we know that he has had this scar and I'm just waiting for the scar to occur. And when he was playing those war games and those boys come up, that was like, oh, this is it. This is where he gets abused. This is where Mm. he gets his injury. I kept waiting for that. And I don't know if you guys were waiting for it or not, but the whole episode I was waiting. I found that I was almost lost in every scene, that I wasn't often thinking for what I was looking for. I I just felt fully entertained by this episode. And this, the, the, re- the reason maybe why I was so focused on it was because I couldn't forget how the previous episode opened sure. with the dream of him with the scarred face or the bloody face in the 80s room. And we have not figured that out. Yeah, yet. So I this is actually, <laughs> I have a lot of different questions that I'm not going to save for in the dark because I just want to make sure I get them all out. And so <laughs> a couple of really important moments here. We see that the chalk numbers are already written on the bunker when he is playing his little war games. Mm-hmm. And so that must have happened earlier, which I guess, of course, must have happened earlier because Yasin's body was found in this episode. Yes. Additionally, my question is about that dream. Yes. <laughs> and was it real or was it just a dream? Was he remembering himself being hurt and then waking up in a different time? Or did he actually wake up in that bunker as we have seen it that Eric was in as a young boy like that? I just don't know. That's the same exact question I had. I think that this whole episode, last episode, this is very appropriate. We were really talking about the chronology of everything and whether or not everything was happening concurrently and consecutively. And I was pretty certain that it was. But now that this episode has happened, I'm no longer certain that we are watching things unfold in order in the same way. Yeah. I wondered the same Why thing. Why is that? Because of Why is that? That's a really good question. <laughs> I don't I, I don't know that I have a very clear answer for you. Well, I was I continued to ask myself that same question and so far in the episode it never felt like nothing was not November 10th. I felt like everything still could be November 10th. For some reason the conversation in the clockmakers Ten Houses store suddenly felt very suspect to me about whether or not it was all happening in one night because he says right on time, just like clockwork, which implies Mm -hmm. that he comes a lot to. And he has in previous episodes, he has shown up and we have seen him arrive. So I think that that may be just each night he has been arriving and he is arriving and that is in 1986. Yes. So... to me, there wasn't anything that which showed that this was out of chronological order, but I don't know. Could be. Yeah. I guess I don't really have anything besides a sense that I'm no longer certain about it anymore. Yeah, I'm never sure. These bullies are horrifically mean to Helge. So terrible. 
So the most terrible thing I could imagine. (laughs) (laughs) And I think because of everything that you said, Jen, about him just being so small and adorable and just wanting to like protect him. (laughs) This was almost worse than if they had just beaten him up. Like this was far more humiliating than, than that would have been. Absolutely. But as these bullies run away the second there might be somebody stronger than them around, (laughs) we meet back up with Ulrich who has decided to turn left when he went into the cave. And I just thought that was a significant choice to make parallels between him and Jonas. Why would he go left? Why did Jonas go right? And I just thought that I would bring that up. Josh, you said you wanted to say something about his meeting with Helga at that point. Yeah, it was interesting how he shows up and specifically what he says to Helga was, hey, if you keep doing that, you got you to fight back or they'll just keep on fighting. And he's like, well, if they're stronger than me, he said, well, next time bite them. Yeah. And and he does. <laughs> and he does, but not the bullies. But we'll talk about that later. The other thing that I wanted to mention about the bunker is I loved the symmetry of Helga imagining that pine cones were grenades and a stick was a gun. And later in the episode, we get old, terrifying woods witch version of Claudia who is standing in what appears to be a fully decked out military bunker at that point you see like rows of grenades a huge light machine gun that like it's ready for war that was such a weird moment and i'm glad that you confirmed that was claudia because i thought so when i saw the picture on the wall well i guess i'm assuming it's claudia because she was the third one in the series that we saw of young and middle-aged claudia Yeah. yeah and it it just looked slightly different so i questioned it briefly but also just to bring another question up now, is that wall of images with threads and obviously the red thread between Mikkel and Michael, does that exist other places? Because I feel like it's been shown a different place times before. Or am I imagining that? It has been shown and it was in the first episode of the show. I think it was still in the bunker in the first episode. Yeah, I believe so. There has been some, I may be kind of superimposing this with my imagination, but in the stranger's hotel room, I feel like there may be some red yarn. He set up his own crazy person wall. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking of sometimes the ending of episodes when they're like showing us who's who and who matches the older and younger versions. I think sometimes we're seeing the images, so maybe I'm just imagining it on a different wall, regardless. Oh, yeah. Possibly. Did you guys pause when the full view was seen of that the crazy person wall? Oh, I didn't pause, but I did replay it a few times. I did too. Okay. I paused. <laughs> did you learn anything? Oh, yes. What? Is this a secret? Well, this this may be a secret. I saw some yarn connecting certain things where I was like, okay. Was it red yarn? Confirming. No. Okay. Actually, whoa. Yeah, there is red and white yarn. I wonder what that means. I only saw red yarn from Michael to Michael. That was it. Oh, okay. Tommy, are you are you going right now? <laughs> it looked no, like I'm you looking at my to... notes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you're about to pull up the episode. No, I want to. Well, I have found it's really challenging doing this podcast and being very 
aware and careful about the things that I'm looking up because I don't want to accidentally see something that I don't remember or I'm waiting for a reveal or mm-hmm. so I wanted to actually in true lost fashion just look up somebody who took a screen cap and brightened it and did all of these different filters to it to make it really really visible but I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to do that without accidentally learning something that I can't talk to you guys about yeah and there's certain concepts where I am This may have happened earlier when we were talking about the 33-year cycle and the eternal recurrence theories, where I heard that last time I saw this show, but I didn't remember it. So there's almost this nervousness of bringing things up (laughs) that are in the show. Uh, It's weird. Oh, absolutely. It's going to get even harder this week once season three comes out. We we basically need to go on lockdown. <laughs> yeah. It's it's hard to know, too, what you're saying of like, did I actually think this or was the seed planted in my brain in some unconscious way? And and you thought of, you know, the eternal recurrence or whatever I'm, I'm thinking of because your brain already remembered it, even though you didn't. It's kind of a chicken and egg situation, <laughs> isn't it? Ooh. Maybe future you came back <laughs> yeah. 33 years ago and told your mom to tell you. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So after the terrible advice, right? Objectively terrible advice that Ulrich gives to Helga. He walks out on a dirt road that we have seen paved before and room full of teeth starts playing again. (laughs) And I know that something's about to go down. Like something intense is about to happen because of the. In the previous episode, in episode seven, there was more room full of teeth. I didn't bring it up. But they have kind of been sprinkled throughout, not that specific song, though, a different part of the 25-minute song. Mm. So Roomful of Teeth has been been sprinkled here and there, so we might hear more. I love it, especially in that moment for some reason. I've been thinking about the name Roomful of Teeth, too, and it makes sense that they're trying to explore the human voice because the mouth is a Roomful of Teeth. Mm, And so maybe that's why they're called Roomful of Teeth. As Roomful of Teeth plays and Ulrich kind of aimlessly wanders out looking for 75-year-old Helga, he is stopped by a car. A car that is filled with his ancestors. And Jen, the way that you look at the show and the patterns that you see and the way that you make connections in your head, to me, doesn't seem to be relatively obvious to you you keep calling it low-hanging fruit but i never notice it and then the second i watch another episode everything that you say becomes like the scales are lifted from my eyes and i can suddenly see every connection that you're making did you see the same confirmation that i saw when agnes walked out of the car are we talking about colors we are talking about colors Mm -hmm. and the Nielsen family is super red. Mm -hmm. You're totally right. That red connects. And I even noticed, I don't know if you said the Doppler family, but their color is definitely brown. I saw that in your notes and I was like, is he doing this just for me? But yes, 100% in 1953, their color is brown. (laughs) But it's true for Charlotte. I think it's true throughout because, yeah. Yeah. And you're totally right that each family seems to have some sort of color that is connected with them. I don't know that it means anything, but it's interesting. Everything everything means everything. (laughs) 
Another thing that I noticed just in terms of color that I wanted to mention, it has to do with one of the other ways that the show differentiates 1953 from 1986 from 2019. And this again connects with what you were saying. It has to do with the filters that seem to be over Mm -hmm. everything. In 1953, it was so obviously like sepia tone. In 1986, yeah. colors are far more saturated. Mm-hmm. And by the time we get to 2019, everything is kind of gray and blue and washed out. Yeah. So I thought that was another interesting color thing to notice about mm-hmm. how they're trying to unconsciously maybe show differences between these times. Yeah, absolutely. And Agnes, correct me if I'm wrong, has on red lipstick yes, as well. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to find the red lipstick thread in this whole show. <laughs> she is so posh. Her sideways hat. Uh, just perfectly askew she is just style queen (laughs) doesn't and doesn't seem to match winden at all Mm -mm. well i was thinking about that a lot of the outfits in the show it felt like okay this could be the 30s it could be the 40s but there are certain parts where you see like whoa that person seems like they're from the 50s and that may be because my idea of the 50s is so americanized where I had this concept and a lot of media has portrayed the 50s in a very specific way. But the teens in particular and Trant, both of those characters seem like, you know, popped collars, stylish hair, seems more 50s than everyone else. Like Helg, he's he seems like a little boy in World War II. There's not too much of a 50s look to him. I would say the whole Doppler family just seems to be generally behind the times. Oh, yeah, that's true. The dad is dressed in like a a brown suit that seemed to make him like a reporter from the 40s. Like, <laughs> I, I just agree with you, I'm saying. And the mom certainly was as modest, buttoned up as you could possibly be. Very, very conservative. I did want to say about the Ulrich and Agnes Trant meeting that the idea that was resonating in the back of my mind was the words the stranger said to Jonas in the previous episode about meddling in how things are supposed to unfold. And I'm just thinking this whole time, like, Ulrich doesn't know this. Like, he doesn't know the situation he's finding himself in and how utterly startling it is. Yes. But also, you know, he's just so, I don't, I want to say dumb kind of coming into this, like, Oh, I live at that address. Like I get that he doesn't know he's necessarily time traveled. He's figuring that out as he goes through this, but I'm just watching all of his mistakes and it's obviously back to the future informed, but no, no, you cannot, intervene with this you cannot stop this from happening as we get further into the episode but it just really bothered me (laughs) did not sit well unless his actions set into motion the things that must happen unless his not knowing and the effect whatever effect that he has caused the things to happen as we know them in 2019 i really enjoyed watching ulrich struggle through this episode because he kept on having to remind himself where he was mm-hmm. and i i felt at times like you were mentioning like oh come on get with it but he should be probably struggling even more than we see him struggling True. it's so difficult well not that i've ever traveled in time <laughs> but it would be so difficult to experience that to put it lightly 
<laughs> and he keeps trying to convince himself of it. He keeps asking more and more people, when is this? And he goes to Ten House and he goes to the clockmaker because I assume there was a portion we weren't shown where he went through a phone book, found Ten House and found him. Yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, we find out in this episode that he lives in Wyndon. For, oh, for a while, I was thinking maybe he was separated from Wyndon in some way. But he's definitely, th- this clock shop, I think, could have been around in some way. So he knows where everything is. and I mean, he is a police officer. He's been around since the 80s. Yeah. And he's lived in the town. it was there in the 80s. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. And his mom used the clock shop, we know. Oh, yeah. So maybe that's why. I'm going to cheat again and talk about a question that I have. Ten House saw the book that he knew he ended up publishing later, right? With yeah. his face on it? Yeah. So by the time he's talking to The Stranger in 1986... Doesn't he know, unless this was just a tiny moment that he just forgot, you know, the specifics of? It's either that or, I don't know, I just think that these events in which someone has time traveled and interacted with you, again, I'm bringing back to the future into this, but I just remember, like, George and Lorraine had no memory of Marty in the past when they were in the future. Like, it just gets... But this was tied to him finding a smartphone in 1953. I have some thoughts about this. The way that he's talking to the stranger, it seems very passive. It's just like, okay, I'm just doing my job and talking to this guy who's coming to me. But then once he knows that he knows, he tells him to leave. It's like, get out of here. I I think that what he's talking about and talking through throughout the episode is more just, I'm humoring a guy who read my book. But I think that once... He realizes, okay, this is a part of everything. I, I, I almost assumed that he was like, I don't want you to meddle because I do know that time travel is real. That was my reading. But of if it. he doesn't want people to meddle, then why would he be making the machine that we know he ultimately finishes? Or I guess he might not finish it, I guess. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't want him to meddle anymore. Then he has already meddled. <laughs> I'm very confused. I guess that connects to the stranger also talking to Jonas and telling him to be very aware of the choices that you're making and don't meddle. But then he says, I'm going to change everything and set it all right at the very end. Yeah. Yeah. After the autopsy and those moments where they say, this takes the cake and it's so weird, Egon talks about why somebody would murder if you're born a murderer, if you become one. Josh, I think you had said that that was kind of the crux of your Lit 101, right? It sure is. We'll talk about that later. At length, I'm sure. (laughs) So then then let's go back to Helga and talk about his weird tutor session with Claudia. And this really puts into a different perspective their conversation when he gives her the book in front of the power plant on the first day that she is the boss. Mm -hmm. Yes. Existing relationship from when they are children. And actually just sprung to mind he must be time traveling at that point and know that time travel exists when he gives her the A Journey Through Time book. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. And also it explains kind of the backstory of why he is not being the head of the plant. Because even as a young child, I assumed it may have been because of the injury. But no, even before an injury, before any incident, he was not the best at numbers. 
Yes. And I feel like you probably need to be pretty good at numbers to run a nuclear power plant. Absolutely. I didn't know how authentic that was, though, because I got the sense that he liked Claudia and was intimidated by her. So I didn't know if he was just like distracted and from a male perspective if i liked her i would do the best math i have ever done in my life i know that's true (laughs) i didn't want to discount him totally (laughs) you can definitely tell in both scenes both in 86 and both in 53 that he has this little crush on her i agree and then agnes and trant arrive and The interaction that we have between Egon's wife and Agnes, everything about them is so like antithesis to me. She seems so timid and so fearful and so unsure, whereas Agnes seems so much more self-possessed, not only in their clothing, but also in the way that they talk. And Egon's wife is apologizing a lot for things. and She just seems very unsure generally. Did you guys have any specific thoughts about that whole Egon comes home scene and uh, meeting Trant? I've already mentioned this, but I loved when Egon is asking her questions like, what made you come to Winden? Oh, my grandmother lived here. And then he asks her, may I ask what your grandmother's name was? And at that moment, that is when they're interrupted. So she cannot answer that question yeah. that I really wanted to know. It, it made it feel like it was important to me, even though it may not be. <laughs> But the show is so purposeful. It did feel important. Are we going to go back in time 33 more years and see Wyndon with the <laughs> Nielsen great, great grandmother? It's possible. That may even be like 66 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I thought it was interesting. I want to talk about that interruption because the Gretchen situation matters to me deeply. But oh yes. <laughs> I think... What I saw happening there, I was very wrong about because I felt like Agnes was being uh, maybe slightly flirtatious with Egon. But as we get to the end of the episode, I think she's, am I reading too much into this, being slightly flirtatious with Mrs. Tiedemann? I don't know. There was the hand touch. Yeah. She didn't seem to care very much about Egon at all. She was looking, um, upon my second viewing, I saw her looking more at the wife, yes. Egon was very clearly affected. I feel like he was definitely yes. thrown off balance by her. Yes. Very opposite but to his But then wife. again, Egon was also thrown off balance by Mrs. Doppler. That's true. All women intimidate him. <laughs> Except maybe yeah. his wife, I don't know. Mrs. Doppler would intimidate any <laughs> anyone, any person. Well, I don't know if I may be reading too much into this, but she comes down and she's like touching the railing as she comes down. And her first words out of her mouth is, my husband isn't home. (laughs) And he had this look on his face that I may be reading too much into. But then he's like, oh, um, the dog. (laughs) Where's the dog? (laughs) Well, speaking of husbands and not being home, this is also the beginning of the Claudia Trant kind of interaction, it seems. Oh, That's right. Yes. So this started when they were children and evolved as they became older as well, Mm -hmm. much like Hannah and Ulrich Mm -hmm. started when they were children and then evolved to something more. Everything's connected. (laughs) What happened to that dog? Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, Like, how far could he have thrown the stick in, right? Did you hear the caves make a sound? I assumed that it Mm. was the stick. 
I listened to it about seven times, and I feel like the caves made a sound. So the cave ate the dog. That's my theory. (laughs) It was a room full of teeth, (laughs) and it ate the dog. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And that made me... So I've had mixed feelings towards Helge, but that made me hate him a lot. Whoa. (laughs) I'll talk more about that later, but... (laughs) The interesting thing is that when we saw that dog, all I could think of is Penny. Yes. (laughs) And I actually can see Penny right now. And you may not want to say her name in the background because she may react to that, but but I think our listeners may have heard Penny in the background. (laughs) Penny is our fourth... It's like the fourth she member contributes of the podcast. She's the Ringo of our yes. podcast. Okay, I'm okay with that. I'll allow that. <laughs> Her name is Penny Lane. I think we should confirm so that it's. Oh. <laughs> yes, that's probably why that scene impacted me a little more because Gretchen looks much like my sweet little Penny Lane. So my heart is hurting for animals over people. Always. A couple couple other things that, well, I feel like that's natural in any fiction. I always feel worse when something happens to an animal as opposed to. It's wretched, but yes, I do. I don't think it's wretched. It's Gretchen? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) I just also really noticed in this episode that Claudia has heterochromia, which is when your eyes are two different colors. And I didn't notice that when she was an adult, but I went back and rewatched the scene where she talked to Helge in front of the power plant. And she definitely does have heterochromia there as well. Mm. And it really changed the way that I watched that interaction. And, and knowing what I know about their history really affected the way that I viewed their conversation a lot more. I agree. And I'm not sure how to describe the differences in how I felt. It definitely didn't make me feel better about claudia it made me almost feel worse like you've been mean to this person for 30 years now 100 percent. yeah let's get back to ulrich as he goes into ten houses clock shop because there's a little moment where he meets also his mother and he sees inez getting the clocks or i don't know whatever they're getting I, uh, yeah. some form of clock i would imagine And I just love the little conspiracy theory that's happening amongst the children of, oh, did you hear? These boys were abducted by aliens. (laughs) And then, of course, Ulrich goes crazy and grabs a little too severe. Yeah. I was shocked that uh, Tan House doesn't do anything. He's just kind of like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. That was weird. The power dynamics in this show seem to be very much related to like whoever wishes to seize power. Is the it. one who gets to have power. Yeah. Especially with him, though. I agree. So then he races to the police station where he's <laughs> shouting crazily about looking at the dead boys. And Egon comes up. And Egon's actually helpful and a degree of kind, mm-hmm. which I find very interesting. You wonder what happened to him between 53 and 86. <laughs> well, and his connection with the Nielsen family now. Yeah. Makes me wonder if that has something to do with why he would hate Ulrich mm-hmm. so much. Well, also, he has that horrible, horrible haircut. <laughs> and <I> think- <laughs> it was bad. It looks like he was in quarantine and then just kind of <laughs> shaved certain parts. That's not actually what I was going to say. But I think it's so interesting that he used to live in that house. 
that he used to live yeah. in the Nielsen house. It's like, what happened I know. there? Egon also seems like a pretty, beyond just that, he also tries to protect his wife from knowing the horrible things that he had to deal with that day. And she's like, is something wrong? Did something bad happen? And he's just like, oh, everything's fine. He just is, it's very kind to me. Like, it just feels like he's trying to protect her from something. Yes, you know, it is probably problematic in the way that he treats his wife. But it didn't seem to me to be something that was him taking control as much as him wanting to protect her. Mm -hmm. So the stranger goes and talks to H.G. Tenhouse. H.G. is the periodic table symbol for Mercury. Mm. I don't know if that's significant, but it is. And I just thought that I would share that with you. Hmm. Another thing that I noticed that's very small, actually, is on the A Journey Through Time book, at the very bottom, it says Minotaurus, hmm. which is like Minotaur. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's supposed to be the publisher or what, but it says that. So that was an interesting mm. thing that I noticed. But the entire time he's talking about time and the 33-year cycle that, Josh, you brought up earlier, and choice and wormholes. And what did you guys take away from this conversation? I don't think I've drawn a specific conclusion. I was most struck by the... And Josh, I don't remember if you've touched on all of these. And honestly, I wanted to go and check and see if this was true to my knowledge. Um, but when he's talking about 33 and he says, Jesus performed 33 miracles, there are 33 litanies of the angels. And then the Antichrist takes reign at 33. I did some cursory Googling. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't find anything about that. And but I didn't I didn't look too hard. I was thinking of maybe going down that direction with Lit 101 because it talks about the Antichrist and then we see Noah. That's what so I wanted to get. We to. see Noah yes. holding a book with? that is the same that looked like the same book that he was holding when he was with Bartosh in the limo mm -hmm. that has a triketra symbol on it. Right. Which makes mm -hmm. me think that it's probably not a Bible. I'm gonna say no. <laughs> really wild to imply that he might be the Antichrist. I yeah. I don't even know if it was that as much as just the embodiment of its own evilness. Because in that particular scene, Noah had the most sinister smirk on his face that just gave me chills. <laughs> Literally. Oh, yeah. Standing in a graveyard. Yes. This whole discussion of 33 being an important number also, to me, it just struck me as really random things that he was choosing. Yes, things that are significant, but also not really. Like Dante's 33 cantos in Purgatorio and Paradiso, but not Inferno. 33 litanies of the angels, 33 miracles of Christ. All of these things show up, but they're also random. And it reminded me of just, again, the human desire to see patterns in things. Have you heard of apophenia? No. Pareidolia? Nope. Both of these are kind of fancy names that describe the human desire to see things. So pareidolia is when you look at the clouds and you see a bunny rabbit or something. That's you looking for sense and order and image in something that is ultimately random and meaningless. And apophenia is that just not with images so it would be something like we look at the number 33 and we look for all of the different instances in in such a way that it could mean something because humans 
ultimately desire for there to be connection and meaning and purpose and things. And that's just what that made me think of. But that's a little more lit 101-y than this portion should be about, I suppose. That was interesting. As they continue talking, we see that the stranger is much more interested in these conversations about time to see if he can change something or not to see if there is a way that he can change what is going on. And this gets really into my lit 101, so I won't talk about it that much, but he brings up causal determinism. Causal determinism is the belief that the universe is governed by cause and effect. So logically speaking, you can always go back and find the reason that something happened. So if I, you know, hit a pool ball somewhere. That ball didn't just start moving out of nowhere. It moved because I hit it with the cue ball. And that moved because I hit it with the stick. And that moved because my arm moved. And you can always go back in time looking for causes of different things that happened. One thing kind of related to that, he mentions that when he's talking about the wormhole, he says that within a wormhole, things are mutually dependent that they can It says within a time loop there. Yeah, within a time loop. Now, if this wormhole is the Triketra in the caves, the Sigmundus Creatus S door, how like if that's inside of the wormhole, what is the edge of the wormhole? Is this time loop specific to just Winden, or is it are there larger implications outside of just this city? Is the time impacting just this small town? I, which is a weird thought to even say out loud, but I wasn't sure about that. Do you mean like if I, like Ulrich, went back to 1953, could I travel outside the city limits of Winden? In a way, but everything seems so focused in on Winden, and it does feel like it's a trap and no one has been able to leave, That's even though they've wanted to. Theory. Yes. I mean, generationally. Right, because Agnes, yeah, generally. her grandmother, no, generationally also, it's... her oh, grandmother yes, used yeah, to live there. Her child apparently escaped for a short while, but then was dragged right back in. I feel like Wyndon is a trap. That after going back and kind of rewatching some of the episodes, what every character almost seems to talk about is getting out, and it's not hard <laughs> to get out of a place. Generally speaking, certainly not with the level of wealth that they have. Like they're not rich, but they're also not so deeply in poverty that they couldn't afford to leave Winden. They seem fine. <laughs> so if Winden is a black hole and it sucks everything into it, what is the where is the event horizon? <laughs> where <laughs> where are the people like they can exist without this time loop going on? Everyone else just gets sucked back in. Hmm. This was also the first time I've heard the term a white hole and that was crazy to me where the black hole sucks in white holes where things end up. I've heard of that concept, but never as a white hole. It's, well, as Tenhouse says, like it's it. only a theory. <laughs> yeah. Oh, also another thing that I wanted to mention, he talks about the Triketra. Hmm, he does talk about the Triketra. He says there are three points to it, but then there's also the middle. He said that. And now I'm just like, wait, if, the Triketra of Time in this show is 5386-2019. What's the middle? I assumed it would be like the center of the wormhole. 
Maybe. Speaking of, we didn't get a uh, pencil jab through a piece of paper on this one. He just wrapped it around in a circle. It was pretty close. It was pretty close. I mean, there are only so <laughs> many ways to explain to people what a wormhole is, I guess. <laughs> I just wanted the stranger to be like, you're really pandering to me. I understand <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Look at me. I'm an adult. <laughs> I've seen Back to the Future. <laughs> That's all you need. There are some pretty big things that happen at the end of the episode, and specifically with the stranger's interaction with Tanhouse. And the biggest thing is we see that Tanhouse has this new version of the machine that the stranger has that he wants him to fix. But I thought that the more interesting revelation that we get, and that was crazy. I mean, I don't want to undercut the awesomeness of that moment, but the thing that was seen more significant to me is Jonas was talking about the cave wormhole. And he said, a few months ago, an incident at the plant released a blast of energy, but the device is able to do the same process. I want to destroy the wormhole that exists. So this might be why the wormhole in the caves functions. Something happened at the nuclear power plant that we don't know about yet, that maybe had something to do with all of the nuclear waste that we saw. Yeah. That somehow did something. And unfortunately, we don't really know what he means by a few months ago. He could mean a few months ago in 1986, a few months ago in 2019. So we don't really really know when this happened. But we're getting more clues that somehow the nuclear power plant is intimately involved with this wormhole. Yes. And that was 2019 that they were talking in, Yes. They were in 1986. 1986. I was wondering when he was that old. Okay. Do you guys think that he's going to take apart the smartphone? He should. (laughs) I like that it scared (laughs) him when the image popped up. (laughs) My whole thought was when Ulrich said, I have a picture of him and he reaches in, what would have happened if he pulled out the phone to show a picture? (laughs) He would have been tackled. (laughs) You're an alien. Or a Satanist. Probably a Satanist, I would say. (laughs) We know Egon loves Satanists. (laughs) Oh, maybe we'll find out what, why he is so obsessed. Hmm. We couldn't finish our discussion about this episode, obviously, without discussing the final interaction between Ulrich and Helga. And the way that it starts, I've just got to go back to the skill of Ulrich's acting. And just, he is so broken And again, the dramatic irony of us knowing what he is contemplating, but Helga just kind of sitting there and saying, you look sad and not knowing, as we know, that he is contemplating murdering a little boy who has done nothing in order to save his own son. That is a mind blowing portion of the show to me. What did you guys think about? Did you have any thoughts about that interaction? I guess part of me judges Ulrich, and I'm I'm not fully considering the lack of knowledge that he has in terms of the implications of his actions and where he is and why and whatever he might do could change the trajectory of many people's lives, but that he is so willing to kill for the sake of his son makes sense. I mean, you protect your family, you you act in that way, but I honestly laughed when he first started chasing Helge because that little boy evaded him pretty easily, it felt like initially. <laughs> yeah. But by the time they got to the cabin, I 
I had not expected, I did not imagine that Ulrich would be the culprit behind this injury. I could not watch that scene. It was very violent to me to just watch him slam a rock that Helge was initially using to defend himself um, into his skull so many times. It was wretched. (laughs) Apparently not enough to kill him, though, which is... He obviously thought so, though. One of my questions was, what is he considering after he drags his body into the bunker? Because he's sitting and staring at the bunker at night with the door closed. And what do you do you think he's considering the implications for what he has done? Do you think he's just dealing with the fact that he has killed a child? What do you think is going through his head in that moment? It feels like guilt, mostly, to me. He's been struggling with like going back in time this whole whole situation. So I don't think that he's like, oh wait, did I just cause that scar that's been on his face this whole time? I don't think he's gone there. No. Maybe he will. <laughs> Uh, beginning of episode nine i don't know it mirrored for me the last scene i think maybe it was the last scene of the last episode or maybe it was the one before but where helge is bringing out um yasin's body outside that same area and you see him mm-hmm. crying or like at least tearing tears running down his face that there was a grief over to him however that happened why ever that happened I think there's a similar emotion being expressed from Ulrich in that that I'm also wondering if he's thinking about is that the best place to leave the body? <laughs> is it mm-hmm. does it should it come with me? Like I don't even know. If I'm assuming he intends to go back quite soon and yeah. Questions from previous episodes have been answered. So we know how Helge got his injury. We have a little bit more of an idea of when those chalk Dates were written on the wall of the bunker. We know that it was in 1953, actually. We know that 1953 was, in fact, used as a dumping ground for bodies, Mm -hmm. as we were talking about last episode. So definitely we are getting some answers here. We learned a little bit more about the book that Noah was holding in the limo. Can you guys think of any other previous episode questions that we know a little bit more about now? I feel like that covers it. Other than just obviously getting more backstory on some of these characters. So another connection thing that might be answered is through the magic of post-production, our listeners didn't hear me do this, but I just rewatched episode six, the portion where Peter and Trant are working together in the bunker and they're looking at a notebook and it is a brown notebook that has a Triketra symbol on it. And it looks a heck of a lot like the notebook that Noah is holding in front of the church. So I guess my question is when is Noah standing in front of the church? So many questions about Noah. <laughs> and who had the notebook first? Mm-hmm. If it's the same notebook, even. Like the Egon's 1986 notebook that Ulrich looks at later. Ah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that does it for Lit Takes. And now we're going to move into Lit 101. Lit 101 is where we take on our professorial attitudes. We put on cap and gowns and fancy the the cool hats, not the flat caps, the cool ones, the puffy ones. Yeah, I'm going to have cool. pomp and circumstance in the background throughout this entire section. <laughs> Perfect. Man, our post-production is just getting better and better with every episode. We're improving. So this is this is where we talk about 
things we noticed, cool connections, themes, allusions to other pieces of literature, basically anything that we think merits some deeper analysis. And this episode has been a little bit more analytical than our previous ones, but hopefully you've been enjoying that. And hopefully you like that aspect of this podcast. So Josh, earlier you brought up that the conversation that Egon has with the cop, you wanted to talk about more in Lit 101, and I can't wait anymore. So go for fine, it. Fine, fine. I mean, I guess so. I guess I could do that. <laughs> now You're just stalling even more. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he says, are you born one or do you become one? And the, that idea of do you, are you born a murderer or do you become a murderer? And this, I'm very interested in psychology. I find it fascinating for various reasons. But this goes back to conversations that I have in class all the time as well about nature versus nurture. And basically, the question of do you become a murderer or are you born a murderer? The answer is yes. Because it is one of those both and situations, of course, like many things. An inclusive or? Yes, absolutely. I wanted to, I did a quick, I looked up an article that discusses this, but back in the 1800s, the discussion a lot of times was, oh, you can tell a murderer by the way that they look. There was a lot of discussion about the way that murderers looked, and that actually informed a lot of media in early television and early movies of having a person with a very strong facial features. Big ears are a big thing with murderers in films. But of course, as we went on in time, we realized, you know, that there's no accuracy to that. But there are quite a lot of genes, and, and I'm no expert in any way in this, but a lot of brain chemistry and a lot of genes involved in these can be problematic that can cause a person to become a murderer. There was a a professor who was curious because he had so many family members who had violent and psychopathic behaviors. His name is Jim Fallon. He says, as he puts it, people with far less dangerous genetics become killers and are psychopaths than what I have. I have almost all of them. He took a test to see, and he has all of the chemical and genetic background for a murderer, but he is not one. As far as we know. Yes, that's true. He's, I mean, he's a professor, so no one would suspect the professor. <laughs> Actually, people would definitely... <laughs> professor Plum. Yeah. But... There's obviously a lot of nurture involved in that there is so much to a person's background that can cause them to commit violent acts. And I wanted to, and, and this is probably because I've been working on the time map and organizing everything and working on the family tree. Of course, we can't analyze their brain chemistry and be like, oh, that's why that person is that way. So rather than focus on that side of things where we're analyzing the brain chemistry of people. I wanted to focus on the nurture part of things. And I'm looking at the family tree and looking at all of our biggest suspects. And this is going to be a little bit less of me talking and more of a discussion. But there are characters that we know some of their nurture sides of things. But I want to start with the ones that we don't know anything. So Noah is obviously a suspect, but we know nothing about him except for his name. Not even sure if it's a real name. The other character that we have had as a suspect is Alexander. There is definitely some suspicion going on, but I think that maybe his 
kind of role in all of this is more on the side of the power plant rather than on the murders. But again, we know nothing about him. We know nothing about his background. And one thing that I've loved about this episode is that it's extended the family tree. We know more of these people's past. But Alexander, at this point, we still do not know. All we know is that he arrived in this year. He said he arrived in Winden 33 years ago in 86. So maybe we will get answers. But first, I wanted to talk about Trant and the nurture side of his background. We know later that he is somehow involved with Peter in this, I don't know, kid gathering. We're not really sure what his role is. But in this episode, we find that his mother and father, their mother has recently moved. And my suspect, uh, my suspicion, I should say, is that when he rolls up his sleeve and we see all those cigarette burns, that that is... Oh, is that what that was? I didn't know if it was cigarette or cigar. I thought like they were disease. cigar. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a little thicker. <laughs> yeah. I'm The diameter of smoking utensils, I don't really know. <laughs> but... Wait, I, I want to back up. I don't know that I agree with you that Peter and Trant are involved in kid gathering together. I don't know that's how I, if that's how I would phrase it. Yeah, that's true. We just know the the reason why I'm making that connection is because of the dirt. Okay. Yeah, there was the same dirt that was near the cabin, and we see them. But that was. But Helga could be equally. That's true. That's very true. But the but it was in Peter's car. Yeah. Okay. That that there's just suspicion there. But Trant, we have seen that he has a lot of abuse going on. And at first my thought was like, wow, mom's abusive. And then I'm like, wait, no, that's definitely dad. Because when earlier in the episode Agnes is like, Oh, he's died, he died, and then she looks to her son and he gave her a knowing look that definitely indicated no dad is not dead. And so we do know that there's abuse going on in his background. Wow, I did not. I did not read that at all. Oh, you didn't? No, I did not either. Really? I had wondered when we did see the reveal of his arm and he rolled up his sleeve. I'm thinking, oh, they were escaping something, but I didn't see the read that you're talking. I about. assumed it was self harm. Oh, I did not. Really? Also, I thought that you were going to lead Miss lead us to she murdered her husband. Oh no, <laughs> we don't know that. I did not think that. <laughs> but okay, I do think. And I may need to rewatch the episode and we may maybe can discuss this, but I feel like that look that went between them was dad is probably not dead, but there's some reason why they left rather than I'm coming back to Winden. And if that, if those burns are self-harm, like we have seen with other characters, or if they are inflicted upon him, regardless, that indicates there's, there can be some trauma that is involved in him maybe. And I'm, and I'm not accusing him of being a murderer necessarily, but I'm just wanting to look at their their backgrounds. Now, one other character I want to look at is Peter, of course, since they go together. Now, Peter, we really don't know much about at all, even though we get a lot of history about him. He's still quite the mystery to us. I find it very strange that Peter's father is Helg. But we still don't know the mother. We still have no idea of what that is. But we do know, and this was mentioned, I believe, in the previous episode, because Charlotte asks Peter, when did you move to Winden? And he says, I moved in 87 after 
this incident that we haven't seen with Helg that occurs on the 12th of November in 86. So at that point, he would have been probably in the 10 to 16 age range that most of these characters have been in, but he was not with Helg, I believe, during this time. So there's some history there that I want to find out about. And I don't know of Peter's background, but I feel like there could be, there's a lot of deep nurture that could have been a bad nurture that could have caused him to do these things. Now, before we get to one other character, I also want to mention Ulrich, because Ulrich, even even though we don't know if his murder is was a success, <laughs> it was an attempt. And he has had, of course, a rough background, but I think that rather than it being his childhood trauma or the internal rage inside of him, I think a lot of it for him is just circumstantial. This is so him being driven to it to save his son. But I also want to bring that up because that may be part of what the other characters are going through as well. I don't know, Trant or Peter, what if they are involved in this, if it could be something that they are forced into, something that they feel that they have to do, or if it's they're, they're just evil. Because I don't get that sense from Peter or Trant in this. I do get that sense from Noah, for sure. But the last character that I want to discuss is Helg and... I think Jen also wants to discuss this as well. And you can feel free to interrupt me at any time. But one thing that I noticed in this episode, he has that very strict mother that feels very abusive to him. It was also weird how he mentioned that the dead birds were beautiful. And he's also extremely bullied by people, I think partially because of his father's riches. I think that that's why he has a target on his back. And also, he's a little bit slow, so maybe that be part of is part of it. But one other thing that can really determine a person's possibility of becoming a murderer is if they have a head injury at an early mm. point in life. And Helg, throughout this, has definitely been very, I would say, passive in this. I don't think that he is the aggressor in these these situations but i found that an interesting connection and so i'm gonna now hand it off to you jen because i think that you have deeper thoughts on our helg yeah that was just my focus is his character development and you touched on a lot of important factors that are determining how we shape him as the viewer um I definitely had the thought when Ulrich beat the crap out of his head that maybe this is the catalyst for everything because we're assuming he survives this and that maybe there's some significant damage that connects to the choices he makes later in life. Because I'm thinking in 1986 that he's the guy outside the power plant cleaning the graffiti off the... uh, blacktop and he's the guy with dementia when he's 75 Mm. and that could all be the result of this head injury alongside whatever neurological disorder that might have brought but what i was noticing if ultimately i'm going to get back to the dead birds but 
when he makes the decision walking with Claudia and Trant through the forest, when Claudia's like, it's time for you to go home, basically, like, stop following us, which was mean. And she's obviously mean to him in every interaction that we've beheld so far. He makes the decision when this sweet, precious little puppy dog stares up at him to throw the stick into the cave, which Claudia said outright, like, we're not allowed to go in the caves. Like, that's potentially this place that holds danger. And upon several viewings, I think I heard some kind of roar that we've only really heard, I think, when people are up close to the cave. And he's pretty close. And I was just like, you little brat, how dare you do this? But then there was a moment in his face and he has those big eyes. So of course he can evoke this um, emotional reaction and whoever's watching him, I think pretty well as an actor anyways, that there's this momentary regret in my observation of like, I wish I hadn't done that, but what can I do now? So Fast forward to the scene, yes, when Ulrich approaches him and he's sitting on those steps, interesting steps outside his large home and vast yard. And he has the, I think it was four birds in the box. And I immediately went back because, you know, I went and we rewatched episodes one through six, whatever it was. And I texted you guys when I saw the shot of Francisca's necklace, which was a bird, which was the necklace that Magnus picked up in the mattress used condom grotesque scene. (laughs) Um, And then what I also noticed in rewatching the episode when Magnus follows her through Winden on her little adventure to get her money and then back to school, she's wearing a large sweater that whole day with a bird on it. And I might be reading too much into this with the color thing, but I'm just going to notice everything that we've seen of the bird so far that I've grabbed. In episode two, the stranger picks one up in the very beginning of the episode when they're searching for Mikkel. And we clearly see the white spots. Its neck is clearly broken when he lifts it. Then head just kind of lobs there. And then when the lights flicker at the end of episode two and Charlotte walks out of the police station... And all those dead birds are there. There's definitely much more than 33. I did try to count and it was an excessive number. So no connection there. Um, And episode three is when we see young Charlotte riding her bike, picks up the bird, puts it in her bag, sketches it out later. And then we find out she's storing all those dead birds, much similar to her future father-in-law. That's a correct connection, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, and then back in episode four, Charlotte talks on the phone to the medical examiner who talks about doing kind of the autopsy work on the birds, burst eardrums on both sides, lost its bearings, crash into the ground, cracked skull. It happens often. Electromagnetic fields interfere with their sensory systems, voltages in the radio wave spectrums, much like electrical appliances. And then the white spots started appearing after Chernobyl. It's kind of a a mutation, even though their radiation levels are normal. So I'm just kind of collecting these details, assuming the birds hold some significance. But when we get to episode eight, which I don't think we saw birds in seven and one. I think those are the only episodes that didn't. 
Um, and Helge has this box of four birds. I love that Ulrich's assumption was, did you kill them? Like, of course, why not? And that immediately made me go to, oh my gosh, how many books have I personally read about serial killers who, in their young age, exhibit abuse towards animals? Like, that's a pretty common thread. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone who kills again and again. That's also a person who often witnesses abuse either in their own home or experiences it themselves. And I just feel like Helga's mother might border on potentially abusive in some way, whether it's just verbal. I'm not sure, but I go back to his discomfort and just undressing in front of her that maybe there's an expectation that she would behave in a certain way towards him. All of which goes back to, okay, again, like many other characters in the story who exhibit evil actions, you have that element of, I feel sympathy for you, or I can even empathize with some of these experiences you're having. But the two things that I'm just kind of holding in my mind and feel like might be important are, I didn't see any of those white spots on those birds. And I recognize those birds probably died in 1953. So that wouldn't make sense. But then I just wondered if there was a time travel element for them too, trying to figure out how he found them because we didn't see that happen. We just know he has the box. Um, The final element of that is just kind of sitting with that quote you mentioned earlier, Josh, which is they're beautiful when they're dead. And what the hell does that mean? And why are you saying that? And it's foreshadowing what you think about young boys when they're dead. I don't know. But in the oh. same, the way it's delivered. Yeah, I know that was disturbing. Yeah. But, <laughs> but accurate and creepy. <laughs> Very creepy. But it's so hard to hold that perspective on him when he's this age in 1953. And even like you said, Tommy, I went back and watched that scene between him and Claudia in 1986 just to see, like, did I think who who was the worst weird person here? And it's definitely Claudia because he's so gentle and kind and praising of her. And to embody this dual nature is so interesting and kind of what I picked up on with Peter from the beginning and how I've, for some reason, Peter's captured my sympathies. Like I've just, no, Peter, like there's something else to your story. You're not just this weird, bad guy. So this Doppler family dynamic just has me intrigued, and I'm paying attention to the fact that Charlotte and him share this weird connection, even though they're not blood-related. So I'm thinking about what that's all about, and it's just an interesting character development. I'm excited to see when we get to get more layers of everyone's like future past selves. Like That's so telling. I think what you're saying, too, about not being able to really hold much against Helge at the point that we see him in 1953 is because he is a child. And yes, we know that he might end up ultimately being involved in these child murders, but at this point he hasn't done anything wrong. Except for and this the is dog. A theme... Okay. That's not like death sentence wrong though. <laughs> it was pretty evil. I think that this relates to a well-trod path in a lot of science fiction is, uh, Philip K. Dick wrote a short story called Minority Report that was then turned into a very weird movie with Tom Cruise that doesn't really match up with the book, with the story at all. But it basically treads that same idea of 
if I know somebody is going to commit a crime in the future, can I stop them before they have done anything wrong? How do you how do you look at culpability for a crime that has not yet happened? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really interesting question. But it's for what you're saying is, yes, we know ultimately where Helga goes, but he isn't there in 1953. He's mostly just like a little boy. But we don't, I don't feel like we know ultimately. I get that we have a lot of clues pointing in a certain direction, but I still don't know if I paint him as intentional murderer, right? Well, at the very least, he is complicit in the murders of at least three children. But are those meant to be murders, or are they trying to do something else? They're trying to do something else. You're drawing the same distinction that I drew when Josh was saying the same thing that I'm saying. (sighs) But ultimately, I think Josh's point is it doesn't matter what he would call it or what he is trying to do. He is complicit in the murder of children. Yeah. I guess it's just, yeah, that's, yes. So yeah, I think we all agree. It's hard to say just because you didn't think you were murdering, it's okay. I know. I don't want to walk into that territory. (laughs) So I was really intrigued mostly by what the stranger and Tanhouse talked about a lot. And so I did a lot of research into determinism, free will, physics, and quantum mechanics. And this is not a science podcast, so I will not be deeply going into anything, but Generally, determinism, as I said before, is the idea that we're governed by the laws of cause and effect, that we don't really have freedom because we are influenced by everything that came before. So basically, the idea of determinism is that we don't really have the ability to make a choice because any choice that we make, we make the decision that we ultimately come to because we were affected by these other influences and these other influences happen to us for reasons. It gets really, really complicated when you think about it on a human level because we're so complicated. But if you just imagine, like I said before, a pool table and you imagine the balls on a pool table moving, they can only move if they were hit before. And you can trace back from a final position of all of the pool balls the first position because you know that each ball can only move if it has already been struck. Are you following me so far? Yeah. So in a very simple system, that's the way that it works. And that's the way that it works with Newtonian physics. So Newton, who came up with most of our idea of classical physics, everything is cause and effect. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff. And so in a world that is perfectly Newtonian, if you have perfect knowledge of a single state of reality of existence, you could perfectly predict the future, right? Because if everything gets down to very small particles hitting each other and reactions happening based off of that, if you had perfect knowledge, you could predict the future. So determinism existed before we knew anything about really atoms and particles and things like that. But it holds true with Newtonian physics. If you think that cause and effect is the most important thing. There are some philosophers that disagreed. Notably, David Hume disagreed with this and said that the only true free will that humans could have is in a deterministic universe, but that's neither here nor there. Once you get to quantum mechanics, suddenly everything looks less clear. And when you get to really, really, really small particles, they stop following the rules that everything else follows. And so you get things like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, where you can never know the 
position and the velocity of any single particle because observing it changes it. So if I observe the position, I change the velocity. And if I observe the velocity, I've changed the position. So I can't know both at once. The thought experiment of Schrodinger's cat, also not very well loved amongst actual physicists. And animal lovers. And animal lovers. (laughs) If you have a box that you know has a cat in it and you don't open that box, at the same time that cat is both alive and dead. Neither is true until you open the box and observe it because observation changes something. And this is the most easily seen in the double slit experiment that is done with light particles. And light, as you probably know, acts as both a particle and as a wave. And in the double slit experiment, you have a little plate that you shoot electrons and photons through one at a time. And if you don't observe it, and if you just look at it at the end, you'll see a an interference pattern much like it was a wave. But if you observe where each individual photon is going through, it will behave like a particle and you'll get just two lines where these holes were. All of that to say, we don't know a lot about specific positions of things in the quantum realm at the quantum level. And most scientists would say that there are only probabilities. So you don't know where an electron is, what path that it goes. You can only say, well, it's likely that it's here. And because of that uncertainty, that might prove determinism false. That might prove that really at bottom, there is randomness and a lack of ability to know reality. And this relates to Jurassic Park when Dr. Ian Malcolm is talking to Laura Dern's character, whose name I don't remember. He's teaching her about chaos theory with the drips of water on her hand. And he says that there are tiny variations that are unknown that vastly affect the outcome. And he says that the the butterfly effect is the common shorthand of this, where a single butterfly flapping its wings in California could mean that monsoon season is three months longer in Asia. So anyway, all of that comes, I, I say all of that because the primary question that Jonas and Ulrich and Helge are dealing with is, can I change the past or is the past unchangeable? And uh, the stranger brings it up specifically with Tenhouse. He says, can I change the past? And Tenhouse shuts him down immediately and says that any scientist would tell you no, but we want to believe that human free will is a thing and that we have the ability to change our future and our past. And so that's just kind of the rabbit hole that I went down, is looking through the history of how does science look at determinism and free will and our ability to make choice. I wonder, though, because if this in Winden, there's butterfly effects, but as I mentioned earlier, they kind of describe Winden as this, as the warp hole. And does that butterfly effect go everywhere or is it just within Winden, as we were mentioning earlier? Yeah. Yeah, I think that connects to everything that we've been saying about Wyndon feeling at once small and big and isolated and close to other things. And quaint and horrible. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that does it for Lit 101. Let's move on to our final segment, which is Still in the Dark. This is where we bring up agonizing questions that we still have by the end of the episode. And I wanted to talk first about this because i think that my question will relate to your questions as well b 
because this episode went further back and we were introduced to new characters, my family tree became even more noticeably blank. And so I wanted to just touch on certain characters that I've noticed, hey, we still do not know these answers. And I mentioned one earlier, Helg. We do not know uh, his partner or, or where Peter came from. And kind of moving continually on that family, er, we, we still have missing information, which may not come about. So, for example, we know nothing about Charlotte, except that she mentioned some stuff about her grandfather. We have not heard much about Katerina, except for that her family was the abusive weird one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and on top of that, we also we have a little bit about Hannah, but I'm not sure if we're going to get any more of Hannah's family from the 50s. And lastly, in the Tiedemann kind of category, Alexander, again, we know nothing about him or his background. And one other character that we do not know, Claudia has Regina, but who is dad? Who is the father? And so that right now has been kind of my real big focus is where will we find out? Kyle Reese, right? Sorry? It's Kyle Reese. <laughs> Not getting the reference. Sorry. It's a Terminator. Terminator reference. Oh, Dang, Josh. I mean, it's been since the 90s. <laughs> and we've already established I have a bad memory. <laughs> but yeah, b- the fact that we're in the 50s now, it just adds more possibilities, which excite me. And I want to know where all these people come from. I'm just interested in families. Me too. (laughs) No, I like that question. I'll echo that. I think my biggest questions center on Noah, obviously, and then the woman staring at the wall and who created that wall and why, whatever, big question. What I was trying to bring up earlier, and I don't know if it's so much a question as I just need to like sort this out, is Eric, Yasin, and Mads, and Mikkel. They don't all disappear the same way. Are you saying that as a statement or asking that as a question? I'm saying it as a statement, but also seeking clarification. I have the timeline here, if you're curious. <laughs> or well, is it just the, the way in which they were taken? The way in which. So Yasin, obviously taken by Noah. No. Noah's lackey. Right. Who we assume is Helg. Right. Because of the little acorn. Right. Yes. The Yeah. What lured him in. Well, and the, and the swole back tat abs <laughs> scene where he's oh. dragging Yasin away as Noah's cleaning the bunker. That's true. Okay. Now, I guess I'm just wondering, it's clear that everyone has died except Mikkel. Yes. Yes. So uh, I would assume that Eric and Yasin and Mads were all taken in a similar fashion by a similar person, but something else entirely different happened to Mikkel. Correct. So I guess thinking about that now, if I'm going back to episode one and the fact that they weren't in the caves... What the heck happened to Mikkel? Like, how did he get? I mean, this is the question that Josh has had since the beginning. Mm-hmm. 
I think I just assumed something this whole time. And then finally, once I see these three bodies show up, I'm like, wait a second, this doesn't add up to me anymore. Also, when we see like, it's not easy. You don't accidentally yeah. travel through the wormhole. Right. That's not something that he would have been like, ooh, what do I yeah. do? Like, <laughs> open the door, why not? Yes. <laughs> so you're totally right. That's all. It's just bothering me. I need to know. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of little questions that I just, what happened to Agnes's husband? What happened to Agnes's grandma? I just, those are small, but I want to know that. I want to know more about the burn marks on Trant, we seem to have decided. Another question of mine is, so are the three legs of that triangle in the wormhole, does one always lead to 1953, one always leads to 1986, and one always leads to 2019? I was wondering that too. Which one leads to 2019? (laughs) Well, the one that they crawled into initially, right? So if you were coming from 1953, it would be the one on the right. Okay. But if you were coming from 1986, it would be the one on the left. I'm so confused. I'm not good with right and left, though, so... (laughs) It's a struggle. <laughs> Just use your thumbs. But when you're dyslexic, it doesn't work. It does. I'm not even dyslexic and it's still a struggle. My other big question is what does Ten House actually know? Yeah. Because we are given instances, and we talked about this a little, but he had a smartphone in 1953. Certainly by the time he's in the 1986 version of himself, he must have had some time to look at that and not just discount it as magic. I would assume, I assume that he's going to take that thing apart. I assume that he's going to notice that technology is getting better and better and better. And especially as things like Star Trek come on TV in the 60s, he is going to believe that this is some sort of advanced technology. But when he is talking to the stranger in 1986, he seems to be pretending like all of it is fake. Like he doesn't know whether all of it is true or not. And so I just want to know how much does Tanhouse know during those conversations with the stranger? And another small side note, does Tanhouse have something to do with the watch that Elizabeth gives to Charlotte from Noah? Ooh. Noah. Josh, why are you smiling? No reason. <laughs> no reason at all. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us till the end, everybody. We hope that you have had a good time following us down our own individual rabbit holes as we put up our metaphorical thread crazy person walls well thank you everybody so much for listening all the way to the end with us we hope that you enjoyed this episode and if you want to hear us talking about anything give us an email tell us tell us something if you have another question we'd love to interact with it but we will see you next time for season one episode nine everything is now who else is collecting dead birds who else has a secret vomiting unicorn tattoo how are there so many broken clocks in one town Find out next time on Lit After Dark. And remember, keep it lit. If you like this podcast, please give us a review and a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We may be reading some more reviews out in the future. If you'd like, you can email us at litafterdarkpod at gmail.com with questions or comments. That's L-I-T-A-F-T-E-R-D-A-R-K pod at gmail.com. You could follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lit After Dark Pod. Thank you to Luke Van for our theme song. You can follow his work on YouTube. 
That's Luke Van with two N's.